Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Frank Matern. I'm the managing partner of McKinsey and Company in Germany, uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this discussion round uh, to our Frankfurt office tonight. Uh, topic of the evening is uh, the future of finance. Um, I was joking with Professor Woolley earlier. Uh, saying, well, the good news is it's not called the death of finance, it's the future of finance. So I think we've got the, the you know, death uh, period behind us. At least most financial institutions seem to. Uh, and uh, we're looking forward again. Uh, the topic is a topic uh, rich in relevance, uh, rich in academic interest and research, and it's also very topical, uh, You may have noticed it as you walked in, next door, next to the big construction site is Commerzbank. And Commerzbank just completed uh, the biggest ever capital increase to restructure its equity base. So uh, we have a topic here of great relevance, of great, of great controversy. And so uh, I'm very pleased to have a distinguished panel here tonight at our building. And uh, I wish you an interesting evening and uh, a great discussion. Thank you very much, Mr. Matern. My name is Rüdiger Trost. I am a member of the um, local LSE alumni group and the organizer of this event. This is the third event together with McKinsey. So a big, big thank you from McKinsey to supporting us uh, organizing these events. Um, we will, I will give you a short um, glimpse of the agenda today. We start with two introductory speeches given by Mr. Dr. Ruli and Professor Goodhart. And then we have a panel discussion about the topic, which will be attended by um, Dr. Woolley, uh, Mark Schieritz, a um, journalist of Die Zeit, Frau, Frau Thelen Pirschke from P P PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Dr. Schmieding from Berenberg Bank. Um, after that, we will have about 30 minutes for questions from the audience. And after that, we are happy to invite you to, as we say, wining and dining and discuss the topic further in detail. Thanks very much. I wish us an interesting and informative evening. Thanks. So, we start with Dr. Woolley. Or do you want to discuss it? Who is starting? <laughs> oh, the technical bit, the difficult bit. I may need some help with this. How do we get rid of the margin? How do you move? This one? Uh, no, I was just thinking of the margin, getting rid of the margin. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, Why is the... It could give you a, a moment to dwell on the title. Oh, start. Nee. Fine, thank you very much. Okay. Good evening. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you very much to the organizers. Um, this um, Future of Finance group, uh, it was a group that um, uh, we formed, it was about two and a half years ago now. We met once a month for 18 months and then produced a conference and a book, The Future of Finance, the LSE Report, which I really do recommend. It's only 15, I'm not sure it's pounds or dollars, but it's cheap and good value. Um, It was um, a, a very strong group of academics, um, 
practitioners, um, and uh, Martin Wolf, John Kay, journalists on the FT. Uh, my uh, chapter in the book and my contribution to the, to the group's discussions was slightly um, off the main stream, but it is nevertheless actually we deal and I deal with, with, a, with fundamental issues um, of the efficiency or inefficiency of markets. Now, as you know, the prevailing paradigm, certainly everybody who here in this room who's, who was at LSE um, knows very well the prevailing paradigm of, of academic finance, which is that um, asset prices, competition keeps asset prices uh, right, correct, correctly valued, that um, capital markets are self-stabilizing, and competition also ensures that uh, financial intermediaries, banks and so forth, don't earn excess profits or rents. Well, I don't buy that. Uh, the evidence of the last 10 or 15 years is, is building up uh, to uh, really thoroughly discredit the academic theory uh, of efficient markets. And the only contender that has been uh, in the wings for the last 10 or 15 years has been the behavioralist theory uh, that bubbles and mispricing and all that we observe that goes wrong in finance stems from behavioral uh, biases. Uh, the trouble is, you will then, if you accept that, if you're obliged to accept the behavioralist explanations, uh, finance, uh, the study of finance ceases to be a science and becomes storytelling. Uh, and I can't actually recall a particularly memorable contribution of the behavioralists to uh, policy. So what we are doing uh, at uh, the center which I established four years ago at LSE, uh, directed by uh, Professor Dmitry Vyanos with a strong group of, of colleagues, uh, another smaller one at uh, Toulouse, to set up to explore the dysfunctionality of finance. Because I'd spent 25 years of my, of my career in finance actually as a fund manager exploiting the mispricings the academics said didn't exist. And I got more interested uh, in, my, um, l l in the later years in exploring what it was that caused uh, the causes and, and, and um, consequences of mispricing rather than just exploiting them. Uh, and that's why I thought I would uh, establish these centers, because I felt that the one thing that was missing in academic theory was the agents, the middlemen. Uh, the efficient market hypothesis assumes that everybody invests directly into the market themselves. There are no agents. They, there are agents in other parts of economics, but not in finance. And I, I felt that it was important to remedy that and to explore the implications of writing agents into finance theory. So that is exactly what we are doing uh, at the center. Uh, and uh, we are exploring asset pricing theory, incorporating agents, and we're all also ex exploring the rent capture, as you know, the excess profits earned by agents, and what the implications are for the size, profitability, and stability of the finance sector. And we've only been doing this... A, 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 for a few years, but one, it's, it, it's uh, shown to be extremely fruitful 
but also um, it suggests uh, a remedy, and I will try and cover at a canter uh, these things. First of all, who's who? When one talks about principal agent fraudulence, um, sometimes they're not clearly defined, but you can broadly say that the principals are on the left, the sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, charitable foundations, endowments, and the man on the street, people who don't sell their services. The agents are those who do sell services and include the ones uh, on on the right. Um, The principals have, uh, the pension funds, for instance, are often staffed by former agents or people who aspire to be agents, and, and they, they slip from the pedestal of being principals. But uh, the, the, the point, and some of the agents do have principal functions, but it's an important uh, to, um, to introduce the agents and to introduce a theory based on them. That's what we've done, first of all, with um, asset pricing theory. Uh, Dimitri Vinos and I um, produced a paper Um, which gives a rational explanation for a phenomenon that has hitherto not had a rational explanation. Uh, Eugene Fammer, one of the high priests of the efficient market, described momentum as the premier unexplained anomaly of of finance. Uh, Unexplained he meant in rational terms because there are behavioralist explanations. And in a very, actually an embarrassingly simple model, we have... um, shown how uh, mispricing does arise and and the key to it actually is taken straight out from my experience as a fund manager. We are a value manager. We uh, underperformed savagely in the tech bubble because we stuck to stocks with fundamental value and uh, we were fired by half our clients um, because they thought we'd lost the plot. The clients went into grow stocks. And so what it is, there's there's an asymmetry. Uh, The agents have more information, different objectives. They want to maximize their profits. And the investor uh, doesn't know how confident the the agent uh, is. And and what we can show in in a simple model, but actually... It's a very beautiful model. I would say that, wouldn't I? I mean, there's no points for beauty, but the point is it's something that you can treat mathematically and uh, is extendable and highly tractable. And frankly, we, we wrote this model two, two and a half years ago and spent the last two years discovering how much it explained and, and the, papers, uh, the, the succession of papers to come. Uh, it's all, it ticks all the right boxes as, as economists. It generally equilibrium, continuous time. And it shows, the key point is, it shows that asset prices are determined by fund flows as well as cash flows. The efficient market hypothesis says that uh, asset prices are determined solely by cash flows. And it applies not just to equities, but bonds, currencies, commodities, anything you like. And it explains just uh, a few of the things. It explains, obviously, momentum reversal, Shows how bubbles and crashes arise, how value and growth, the investment sectors, arise, what, con- con- uh, what contributes to the um, post-earnings announcement reaction. It, it, it explains commercial risk, co-movement. It, the, the list is long. The second leg of the analysis, uh, which is conducted with colleagues in, in Toulouse, where they are hot shots at um, uh, optimal contracting, 
um, which shows, again, in a rational expectations model, uh, we show how it is that the agents are able to extract rents because of asymmetric information, through opacity and complexity, and through moral hazard, moral hazard being uh, the performance fees. They win, the client loses. Um, you know, head, heads, heads the agent wins, uh, tails the client loses. And the rent model, rents model, um, uh, it shows how, in fact, most innovations are plagued by not only information asymmetry, but also opacity. Just think of the, the crisis we've, we've gone through when even those buying and selling CDOs didn't know what they contained. Um, and um, I mean, it, it is actually frightening what it shows. It shows not just that the agents are in a position to gain all the benefits, all the benefits from innovations, but they are in a position to capture the bulk of the returns from the productive economy. It feels like that. Um, rational theories of asset. Uh, mispricing and rent capture, straightforward models, tractable and extendable. It improves our understanding of financial markets, and it relegates, I contend, uh, the efficient market hypothesis to a special and limiting case. It's compatible, though preferable, to behavioralist explanations. Uh, of course, there's a stark contrast between the theories. I, it can only be because of the efficient market hypothesis that nobody uh, until now has asked why is the finance sector so big or is society well served by the finance sector. Those questions didn't arise because the efficient market hypothesis said it's an efficient pass-through. So we, in our model, um, rational models, uh, offer, are, are building up. I mean, you, you don't write papers overnight um, uh, but we're seeking to present um, a paradigm which explains mispricings um, because mispricings are actually, one used to think of them just being um, causes of resource misallocation, but the crisis have shown it's far worse than that because the combination of inappropriate um, stabilization policies of central banks coupled with distorted markets uh, has huge costs to GDP and, 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 and society. And then the rent capture um, uh, is a, a substantial transfer of wealth, um, which I, of course, enjoyed. Um, um, not substantial, but enough to finance centres. I mean, so, uh, but they both impose social costs and, and create a perfect storm. The two, two interact savagely. Uh, Short-termism is a, uh, a great problem. Um, our model actually shows... I mean, the, it, it's fascinating. Um, there are a lot of um, groups um, and people writing to say long-term investment is preferable to short-term investment. But, in fact, the horizon of investing is beginning shorter and shorter, as you can see from the higher and higher turnover to the point where there's now high-frequency trading, all in happening in milliseconds. Um, <clears throat> and what we show is that, in fact, it's the nature of the contracts, the agents, between the agents and principals, that is actually encouraging um, short-termism. 
Um, I'm just going to rattle quickly through um, this, the size of the finance sector, the fact that it represented, before the crisis, 40% of corporate profits, uh, aggregate corporate profits in the UK and the US, less in Europe. Um, it, was, um, it imposed huge costs the following couple of years when it lost money, and it's back now to making huge profits again. Uh, it will actually drag down. I mean, if we have another crisis, that will spell the end of capitalism, as we know it, in my view. Um, the new paradigm informs the remedy. What we point to is a principal agent problem giving rise to mispricing and rent capture. The principles, the giant funds, as I call them, um, have been subverted. They've, they've failed to realize what's happening when they appoint agents. They write the wrong contracts. They, give the wrong they do the wrong strategies. They're being subverted and seduced by the agents. I don't actually blame the banks and the finance sector generally. They're just acting out uh, the efficient market hypothesis. They're dancing to the tune written by the academics. Um, so uh, what we show is if you've got a principal agent, set of principal agent problems, you get the principles to be aware of it and to change the way they act. Uh, and so I've, uh, we've, I've come up in the chapter and I'm talking uh, to policymakers um, uh, around the world and also giant funds who are very interested because they, you know, the return on pension funds the last 10 years was 1% real uh, per annum compared with 4 or 5% a year real in the preceding decades. <clears throat> so I've come up with uh, 10 policies uh, and just, there they are. That's my last exhibit. Uh, the important thing is to emphasize long-term investing one way of doing that is simply capping turnover, telling your managers you can't have a turnover of more than 30%, even letting the policymakers uh, withdraw your tax exemption rights if you do overtrade. Um, recognize, actually, this is terribly important. Most giant funds and managers and the agents, they know that markets are inefficient, but all the measures they are using to compute and calculate and risk and, and return are based on the efficient market hypothesis and the capital market theory built upon it. And they're giving exactly contrary indicators of what they should be doing. Uh, the rest is pretty transparent, um, and I rest my case. Thank you. I've managed to blank out everything, probably including myself. <laughs> there we are. This is yours. Uh, that's one. Perfect. That's the one. Good. Uh, Paul mentioned the uh, members of the Future of Finance group. Uh, he actually missed out a couple of them, uh, which were the regulators. 
because both Adair Turner, uh, the head of the Financial Services Authority, and Andy Haldane, who is the director of the Bank of England, uh, were members of our group, and they both contributed chapters uh, to our future of finance. And it was partly that the regulators, like everyone else, uh, were aware that in various ways they'd got things wrong, uh, perhaps as much in the UK as anywhere else. And indeed, um, like Paul, I think that the, the blame for the crisis uh, has to be spread uh, much more widely than the standard suspects, you know, the bankers and the credit rating agencies and all the rest. And as a macroeconomist, I would certainly include academic macroeconomists in the group of the guilty. Because the basic models that we have run have assumed that there are no financial frictions whatsoever. They are based on the assumption that everybody pays all their debts with absolute certainty uh, by the time the the model comes to an end. It's what's known in the jargon as the transversality clause. And it actually makes the mathematics and the building of the model enormously much easier. But of course it's nonsense. For one thing, it means that there is no need uh, to have any financial intermediary. Because in order to assume that there are no defaults anywhere and everyone pays all their debts with absolute certainty, it means that you've got to be able to hedge against all possible eventualities, including uh, Donald Rumfeld's unknown unknowns. Now, how you can hedge against unknown unknowns, I've never quite understood. Uh, But the perfect financial markets incorporate uh, that assumption. And if you have such perfect financial markets, and indeed perfection among humankind, because no default means that even when you can get away with it and sort of default without any, you know, without any comeback, a strategic default, you don't actually do so. So our basic models assumed uh, perfect human beings and perfect financial markets. Because of that, there was no financial intermediation, and in practice, although most of the models had money in them, Money actually shouldn't have been in those models at all because there's no need for it. You see, if, you could, if, if everybody pays their debts with absolute certainty, um, anybody's IOU is as good as, any, as, as government paper or gold or anything else because it is absolutely perfectly safe. There is no credit risk at all. So we constructed our models on the assumption that what occurred in 2007, 2009 could not happen. We assumed it away. Um, The regulators also made their assumptions. The regulators assumed that Basel II would provide sufficient capital against virtually all eventualities, and that so long as banks maintained a sufficiency of Basel II capital requirement, that since they would be creditworthy, the large, efficient wholesale financial markets would always be open to them. And therefore, there was no need to worry about liquidity. And in Northern Rock, 
an institution which had taken on so much leverage, but was still consistent with Basel II, that other, under the American leverage ratio would have been critically undercapitalized in June 2007, well before it's, it, it came into crisis, and should have either raised more equity or be shut. Um, they, because it was Basel II compliant, the FSA allowed it to increase its dividend payout and paid no attention whatsoever to its extremely fragile liquidity condition at all. The politicians are also up there in the frame, possibly particularly in the United States, where it was the politicians who were more responsible than anybody else for the explosion of the subprime mortgage market. If it hadn't been for the politicians pushing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac into providing more and more guarantees and support for less and less high-quality mortgages, the whole exercise wouldn't have got going. And indeed, the politicians are always likely to support bubble conditions, because bubble conditions are politically extremely attractive. It's very difficult for an Irish politician to actually turn round and say in 2005, 2006, the whole thing is built on sand. I'm going to raise loan-to-value ratios and stop Irish housing prices or property prices going through the roof. Or Spanish politicians, and they don't. They don't. Gordon Brown, indeed, said we have abolished boom and bust, which effectively means that if everything is so stable, you can put risk on almost without limit. A lot of talk has been made about the interest rates in the United States having been so low, too low, in the 2000s. And I think there is some argument for that. But where I would put the blame, in fact, in that case, is not so much on interest rates being too low, but on the promise that the authorities gave that these low rates would be held this low for a very long time. Now, this was intended to give a message to investors at the long end of the market to invest in long-term bonds and lower long-term bond prices. The problem was that if you promise bankers and uh, other financial intermediaries that you're going to hold short rates very low for a very long time, it's more or less telling them to go out and put on leverage. You know, anyone who doesn't take a put on leverage under those circumstances is a wimp. Anyhow, I... We went through all these issues in the book, and I went through, in my chapter, the sort of state of play that we had in financial regulation. Now, I'm constitutionally incapable, almost, of revisiting papers and work that I've written before. I find it so dull as to be unacceptable. So what I am going to... I'm, actually, I'm bringing out a book in the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision in the Autumn, uh, which is going to be one of the dullest books that anyone has ever uh, had the misfortune to read. Uh, 
is partly because I was given access to many of the files, and I felt that since other people weren't going to get the same access to the files, I ought to put the, the more interesting papers on record in appendices. So the book is filled with all the, the more important papers that were written by the Basel Committee, which after you've gone through 400 pages of this, your eyes sort of circle in stalks. But anyhow, as I was saying, um, the, um, my chapter was really about financial regulation. And what I want to do is to, is, to, is to take the story on from the point it reached when I was writing, which was effectively early spring, late winter, early spring last year. Because a lot has happened. Um, there are those people who say that the momentum of reform and the momentum to change and improve financial regulation has somehow been lost, and that there was this attempt to get a coherent and strong drive to better regulation uh, in the aftermath of the Lehman crisis in 2008, and that momentum has somehow been lost. In my view, that's actually nonsense. A huge amount has been done, and a huge amount continues to be done, um, and a, a great deal of work is going on. Uh, it was impossible, I think, to get very far forward until the Americans had, at any rate, cleared up some of their own minds on the subject, and the Dodd-Frank bill became passed uh, into law in July last year, and more or less immediately following that, uh, the Basel Committee came forward uh, with the main elements of Basel III, uh, which so far have primarily incorporated the capital requirements. Uh, the uh, 4.5 minimum uh, of uh, core equity, tier one core equity, with the 7% required level with a conservation of two and a half between the seven and the four percent. Uh, and that was a, a major step forward because when you think that tier one core equity was in many cases less than one and a half or one percent because of the use of uh, hybrids and other games and forms of manipulation uh, of capital that had been introduced. It's an, a multiple increase of four or five times uh, in the amount of, of equity. Oop, I've gone too far. I've got to go. Oop. Now, again, I've managed to get everything out. Oop. I've changed the page. And I want to go back one page. Let's see if that does. There we are. So what I want to, to talk about, really, is the state we're in, the current position, um, and I want to divide this into crisis prevention and crisis resolution. Now, what has been primarily done uh, are the capital requirements. What remains to be done uh, is the add-on for systemically important financial intermediaries. Uh, there was a leaked report in the Financial Times a few weeks ago indicating that there, this was likely to be a graduated add-on, particularly for the global CIFIs or G-CIFIs. And the suggestion is that there might be a minimum of 1% for the, 
for the smaller, less connected national civvies, increasing up to perhaps 3% add-on for the really big, broadly connected global civvies. I must say those specific numbers, one and three, are numbers that I've taken off the wall and uh, my guess is what is likely to happen. What I don't understand is what is the basis on which the graduation, which is now expected, is going to be done. Because if it is interconnection, how do you assess interconnection? How do you measure it? How do you quantify it? And I know of no good way that this can be done. If it is to be size, size in relation to what? Size in relation to the world market? Size in relation to, to what? I, take, for example, Standard Chartered, uh, which is a global bank, which is headquartered in the UK, but is very, very small in the UK. In some of the Middle Eastern countries and Asian and African countries in which it operates, it's relatively big. In terms of overall size compared, shall we say, to some of the big uh, American banks or to, say, to Deutsche Bank, it's pretty darn small. Now, now how big is it? I mean, it may be big, for example, uh, in one of the Gulf countries. It's small in the UK. It's maybe medium size in the, in the world. Is it big, medium, or small? How do you, how do you assess it? The next thing that hasn't been done, they made a stab in the Basel Committee uh, at liquidity. And everybody says after the failure of the wholesale financial markets and therefore the need of banks to go very quickly to their central bank for support, that what you need is liquidity in order to be able to tide you through the difficult days and to give the central bank time to decide how best to respond to the liquidity difficulties. So the central banks ought to have more owned liquidity, particularly in the form uh, of assets with a strong and resilient market. However, when the, um, the Basel Committee started to propose uh, net stable funding ratios, that the banks ought to be reducing their reliance on short-term wholesale markets. Um, the banking industry put up a greater objection than to any of the other proposals on the grounds that there simply wouldn't be uh, a sufficiently large available pool, either of retail deposits or long-term bonds in order to enable them to meet the kind of net stable funding ratios that the Basel Committee had in mind. So what we have at the moment is simply an observation ratio which is not going to come into operation for several years and is going to have a very long lead time or lag period indeed. So there's a lot still to be done on liquidity. And then there's a whole question about structure. Do you want to forbid banks to do certain actions or to divide the kind of operations they do up into certain bits? 
You've got the Volcker proposals under the Dodd-Frank Act, which got very much watered down, and which in turn are very difficult to introduce. How do you distinguish proprietary trading from trading on behalf of making markets available for clients? It's very difficult, because if you're going to make markets available for clients, you want to do it in a way which minimizes the costs for yourself. Do you really want to divide up, as the Vickers Commission, the Independent Commission on Banking in the UK is suggesting, to divide up investment banking from retail banking? In any case, is there a, a clear dividing line? What happens with large businesses. <clears throat> For example, Shell in the in UK and, and in Holland. Is Shell, does Shell's deposits, do they come in the retail bank bit or do they go in the investment bank bit? I, you know, when a bank is dealing with large corporate clients, it's sort of halfway between investment banking and retail banking. And in any case, does dividing it up actually make is it, does it make any sense? Because it's likely to, in a sense, increase the fragility of both the separate parts. And if one part goes, can the other part survive given reputational considerations? So there's a lot still to be done. And what's more, I think there are some deficiencies in what has been done. And as I show on there on the, on the board, I would particularly note two. First one, the counter-cyclical measures. I'm all for counter-cyclical capital requirements because with a risk-related capital requirement, risk-weighted assets, and mark-to-market accounting on top of that, the capital requirements as they stand are strongly pro-cyclical. So you need a counter-cyclical offset in order to prevent your regulation being pro-cyclical and potentially making the situation worse. So I was delighted when Basel came through with countercyclical requirements. What worries me is that these countercyclical requirements are to be left to the discretionary judgment of each central bank. Now the problem with that, the problem with that is that McChesney Martin would have had the, one of the great phrases of central banking, which is that central banking is about taking away the punch bowl when the party is just getting going. And that is very, very unpopular. Uh, you know, if, you, um, if you've got teenage children and you as parents start taking away the alcohol just as people are getting a bit merry, you will appreciate just how unpopular taking away the punch bowl is. The difficulty is that when you try and do this as a central bank or as any independent body, you will be attacked by experts who will say, how do you know that this is a bubble? You will be attacked by politicians who believe that because of their own great skills, they have made a higher level of prices appropriate. You will be attacked by the borrowers. You will be attacked by the lenders. You'll be attacked by everyone. You'll be hated. Ha Subprime now is demonized. How on earth could they have ever done something so damn stupid? If you were in 2005, 2006, subprime was regarded as one of the great triumphs of financial engineering. 
And had the, the Federal Reserve Bank moved strongly against subprime, it would have been attacked bitterly. It wasn't just that Alan Greenspan had an ideology against intervention. It was that it would have been incredibly unpopular. And it's very difficult for a central bank just using its own discretionary judgment to take those unpopular measures. Now, my second deficiency that I would uh, point to is the leverage ratio. The problem with the leverage ratio is that I don't think the Basel Committee leverage ratio is anything like strong enough. It's 3%. In other words, you can lever up 33 times on the basis of your equity, and that's all right. Now, I think that that is, for any financial intermediary, whether it's bank, hedge fund, or whatever you like, 33 to 1 is just too much. And I would have much preferred a leverage ratio uh, significantly higher. Five, why not 5%, 20 to 1? That's still quite a, quite a go. Right, now let me move on and just end up with the crisis resolution issues. Living wills. That's trying to get banks to adjust their condition so that they are in a, in a state that the authorities can close them more easily. Highly desirable. Oh, I'm going on too long. I will pass over living wills, uh, apart from saying that the exercise of doing this is going to be extremely time-consuming, um, and it's going to be very arduous. And I think that the idea that all banks are going to be able to do this and do it regularly uh, is just underestimates uh, the time and effort concerned. Then we do need, and we will get in Europe, special resolution regimes enabling the authorities to intervene at an earlier stage and undertake prompt corrective action, and that needs to be done. And the final issue, which I have left myself with far too little time to go on, uh, are these funnies, these forms of conditional contingent bonds which transform from bonds into equities when certain triggers are passed, and bail-ins, which are bonds when, again, a point is passed, usually when they're running close to danger and close to insolvency, when the bonds suffer a transformation of part or all uh, of the principle of the bond into equity. Again, this is in principle a very good idea, and it's a wonderful idea if you look at one bank at a time. But the problem is the systemic contagious effects on the system as a whole. And the difficulty here is that if you get a systemic crisis affecting the banking system as a whole, and one bank goes down, and the bail-in cost to the bondholder uh, of that kind of bail-in bond is, as it probably would be, quite significant, then it will be extremely difficult for other banks to raise any new money on a bail-in basis or a cocoa basis at all because there will be a great deal of uncertainty and a great deal of difficulty. I would refer it. The English version of the FT today had a piece in it about the problem uh, of the other Danish banks 
when a small Danish bank did suffer a bail-in problem uh, when it went down very recently. And that would be enhanced uh, by a huge factor uh, if a relatively big bank was to go down and the bondholders subject to bail-ins uh, were to suffer a sufficient loss, were, uh, suffer a large loss. It's not a problem for the bank going, running, the first bank running into difficulties. For that bank, it's a great idea. It enables the bank to continue as a going concern, and it, 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 it's the answer to a maiden's prayer. The problem is what happens to the other banks who are in trouble, who need to raise money. And it's not clear at all that they would actually be able to do so. And yet we are moving towards a situation where from 2013, all banks will have to continue to raise a very large volume of such bail-in bonds. And it's far from clear uh, that that will strengthen the position of the system as a whole, though it will be very good for the first bank getting into difficulties. I'm afraid I've gone on about five minutes too long, um, but we will now move straight on to the panel session, um, which I'm also going to, um, um, to moderate. So if I could ask the other members of the panel to come on up to the table. have had our chance to, um, to say our words, and I said too many. So I'm going to now turn uh, to each of my colleagues on the table. Um, an account of who they are is available in, your, in the handout that was there for you, so I won't take time to go through it again. And I shall ask them in order, starting with Holger Schmieding, um, to, to, to start as to start as well. Okay. Okay. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I've heard two great presentations. Unfortunately, I'm not an expert on financial regulation very much, so I'll give you a few rather general comments, including a few remarks on financial regulation. But first of all, I would like to emphasise a simple thing. In the Western world, central banks are the monopoly providers of legal tender. They are the ultimate source of refinancing for banks. So they are responsible, in my view, for the stability of the value of money, but also, to a significant extent, for the stability of the circulation of the monopoly money which they provide. So the first thing to be emphasized, in my view, is that banks, the financial system, with all their warts, are, in a way, tools to transmit monetary policy to the real economy. If aggregate credit growth is too strong, if there is far too much leverage in the system, if the financial sector itself seems to be becoming too big and too profitable, that is, in a way, the consequence of what the incentives are that are given to the financial industry by the central bank. So the first point... Professor Goodhart alluded to that, I would very much like to emphasize. 
for many of the bubbles that we are talking about, such as the one in the U.S. and the U.K. five, seven years ago, these were bubbles which went which were not just going on in some funny asset markets, but which went along with an overall pace of credit expansion and other things which, suitably analyzed, should have led to the conclusion that perhaps monetary policy is focusing too much just on the stability of the value of money, but not on the risks to the stability of the circulation of money. So that's the first thing, very easy Central banks, you're responsible for more than price stability. Um, do your job. Don't get us into bubbles. Well, they always will. There will always be bubbles. But try at least, by analyzing credit growth, to reduce the risk that bubbles may arise or may get completely out of hand. The second point, my lesson from the financial crisis is, if nonetheless a bubble is there and it pops, then react to it like Europe, not like the U.S., The U.S. faced with a grave financial crisis let Lehman Brothers go into a disorderly default. The result was the worst recession in the Western world for 80 years. Europe, which has been heavily criticized for its handling of the Greek crisis, reacted in a way to its financial crisis that enabled core Europe to have its best economic times in 20 years. So the clear lesson is, if faced with a crisis, think first and foremost of contagion risks and act accordingly, as Europe so far has done. The third point I'd like to make is, and that goes now towards the arena of financial regulation, what we need for most and foremost, in my view, are processes for the orderly winding down of institutions, for orderly defaults that are cognizant of the contagion risks that may exist in any bankruptcy, especially in the financial system. I think we've heard from, Professor, uh, from both speakers a few um, aspects of that. That, to me, is the top priority in financial regulation, containing the contagion risks by having well-known procedures for orderly winding down of institutions, which is the opposite of just putting a sign Uh, at the door of Lehman Brothers, closed as of today. And fourth, a point which has also been made, which I would love to emphasize a lot in regulation, what we need is an anti-cyclical, not a pro-cyclical regulation. Basel III is going that way. We very much need capital buffers, which as a bank you can actually use when you need them. If your capital ratios, your regulatory requirements are the death sentence for you, that is, when you fall below them, you're dead. And if you get close to them, you're dead because other banks will stop trading with you. Then there is no, not much use in having actually such a buffer. It doesn't help with the contagion risk. It helps a little bit to make your creditors whole, well, to give them 5% perhaps in a bankruptcy, But it is not very much help. What you need is a capital buffer that moves with the cycle. And if we get that out of Basel III, that would be, in my view, a significant contribution to avoiding bankruptcies of banks at an early stage to reduce contagion risks and thus to have an overall financial system which will never be perfect, which will always, that's just human hurt behavior, always produce some bubbles somewhere but which, in doing so, may be a bit less risky than it has been recently. Thank you. Thank you very much. And next we have Hiltrude 
Talen Bischke. Hello. Yes, I think I'm the only practitioner in this panel. At this panel, uh, I'm working for PricewaterhouseCoopers in Germany, and I'm um, in the regulatory practice um, since more than 15 years. So I saw a lot of these developments: Basel One, Basel Two, and now Basel Three. And I see uh, which kind of problems banks have with the implementation, and um, yes, um, applying these rules. So. I appreciate all of these new developments very much. I think capital is a very uh, big and strong issue for banks. And, um, but I, on the other hand, what I see is there's a challenge for the experts in the banks to find new solutions to avoid, uh, yes, uh, more capital and capital buffers in banks. So all what I've seen in the last years is um, that these uh, experts are developing um, yes, accounting, uh, tax, and um, regulatory optimization, and um, they are developing products which find solution for these challenges. So that's, I think, a very important issue for us as auditors as well as advisors. And um, that's, the crisis was not only a subprime crisis, there was... Um, huge amount of bubble in other areas like leveraged loans, commercial real estate, private equity financing, and um, all these kind of complex products like CDOs, CDOs squared, and so on. And um, yes, the, the issues are, I think, very uh, different in this area. German banks perhaps had a very big competition um, so they were looking for new business models for new areas to get profits, and they were building and establishing conduits and used the possibility that the um, um, liquidity facilities were are not uh, required um, for the capital buffers. And so that was a really big gap in the regulatory um, um, area um, for the banks, at least in Germany. I think that was a very big issue. And on the other hand, they um, like to, um, yes, invest in bespoke and tailored products for their risk appetite and the liquidity expectations, and these products were offered by investment banks. So it was really uh, a big opportunity for them. And nowadays, we all know that uh, these AAA products weren't AAA because the underlying assets uh, had different risks and they hadn't looked through, but it wasn't required. So in Germany, we have a so-called Section 18 in the Banking Act, and in the Section 18, uh, you have to make a due diligence for lending for credits, but it was not required to do a due diligence for the asset-backed securities. And I think there are, in detail, a lot of, of um, yes, um, requirements for different regulations, but on the other hand, I'm not, um, um, yes, I'm not favoring uh, the rules-based regulation because I think it uh, invites the people and the experts to circumvent these rules. So that's a really different and challenging requirement for um, optimizing the regulation. And um, I'm, yes, I'm a little bit um, skeptical what um, I'm seeing so far from the Basel Committee and from the EU development, CID4, I just uh, learned that it's about 500 pages 
So along the transmission sections and articles will be about 10 pages. And um, so I, I see a lot of work for the banks regarding implementing the new rules, applying the new rules, and for um, supervisors and yes, uh, as well as auditors to monitor these new rules. Yes, I think that's enough so far. Thank you very much. Mark. Yeah, uh, thank you. Two great presentations I found. I especially like the title of your uh, center, the Center for Financial Market Dysfunctionality, uh, which is really great, I found. Um, I just I thought I'd just comment on post three, um, hopefully a bit provocative, provocative questions on the, on the issues mentioned. Um, the first one is the, I mean, we are talking about financial regulation and banking regulation, global banking regulation, and I wonder... Um, whether there are limits to what, what we can do on a, on a global level and what we should do on a global level, um, given, firstly, different policy choices and traditions. I mean, some people want more regulation, others want less. But also, given different national traditions, I've been following the Basel III negotiations quite closely, and especially the German position, which, of course, as many here might know, was uh, Despite this country being a, a country with a regulatory, strong regulatory bias, um, the German, German negotiators try to water down, of course, the Basel III um, rules because they don't fit to the German banking system. I mean, if you look at the capital structure of the German Landesbanks, these are different. They've got these um, uh, silent participations and so on and so on. And there, I think some of these instruments are on a material level not that different probably from equity capital, but still they, weren't, uh, they are not counting for capital anymore. And I don't think this, is, this was a, uh, um, an attempt to somehow rescue an insolvent banking system. It's just a different tradition. So I wonder what we, uh, what we should do on a global level. And uh, to put it in a question, uh, why not allow for more fragmentation? And, of course, if you talk to bankers, the answer is always fragmentation is costly and we have to comply with different national rules. Um, so what? Um, why not still do it? I mean, if the benefits outweigh the costs, why not do it? Um, the uh, the um, the um, second question uh, related relates to the too big to fail and the um, issue of um, resolution regimes. I sometimes wonder, you know, having also followed all the attempts and the efforts that has been put into the into this um, um, issue, I wonder whether the um, the uh, the argument that too big to fail means too big to exist exists um, is really true and whether we not just have to live with the fact that banks are too big to fail and we always need to bail them out. And I, I'm not aware of any major banking failure in history which has not led to a major catastrophe. So um, probably have to just live with the fact and, and um, find other solutions. And the third point um, was about um, the uh, discretion, regulatory discretion and taking the punch bowl away. Um, and knowing some of the regulators and the central bankers from my... Um, capacity as a journalist, I, I t uh, totally agree, and I wonder whether the solution might not be in having more automaticity in, um, in these rules, so as um, to allow them for, uh, take, to, to take effect automatically, so there's no discretion by any human being which could um, misuse this discretion. Well, there's an interesting dichotomy between the speakers, because you don't want a rules-based regulation at all, and you want much more in the way of automaticity, which implies rules. Um, how do you think, how, how do you square the, that difference? And how, how, I could go back to you, Holger, 
I, how do you, you, you pointed out that the central bankers failed to do their duty. Given how unpopular that duty would have been, how do you get them to do their duty? Well, rules may help a lot in that regard. The issue is what is the rule? For a long time it was regarded as the dogma that price stability, safeguarding price stability and perhaps an inflation target is the best rule, sort of rule, for central banks. I would have a somewhat Bundesbank-informed pragmatic approach, Bundesbank-informed in the sense that if you're a central bank, you know that money and credit matters and you know that you're responsible for it as the central bank. So I would not have a fixed money supply rule, but I would clearly have as a rule for a central bank, whatever happens elsewhere in the world, you watch your money and credit, and beyond that, of course, you may do your inflation forecasting, your inflation targeting. So that's a somewhat pragmatic answer to that. No fixed rule, but be told that you're responsible for money and credit and realize it. And if you can justify to the population, you're not doing this because you, don't, you, you hate subprime or the like, but because overall credit growth is excessive, you may be able to as the Bundesbank has done, explain unpopular moves. Do you agree with that? <laughs> um, I think that is more the macroeconomic perspective, yes. so I'm uh, more on the yes, day-to-day -day business of regulation, and in that area I see that the, uh, yes, the rules-based regulation will not really work at the end of the day. So people are box-ticking they are um, uh, uh, applying these rules, but they are not going beyond these rules and are not thinking what are the risks, what are the real risks in this business, what are the liquidity risks, what are the credit risks, and is there a correlation between different assets and different investments and so on. So all these rules-based regulation um, awards that people go beyond and think beyond their um, original work and tasks. That's my problem. And I see these rules-based issues in IFRS, in the accounting rules. I see them in the anti-money laundering areas. I see them in the tax areas, and especially now in the um, regulation of banks. And uh, I think that's an, a, misleading, a misleading regulation at the end of the day. But if you're going to rely on central bank discretion, you're assuming that central bankers are sort of superhuman people. And I'm having been a central banker, I can promise you they're not. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you stand on rules versus discretion? Um, well, I'm, I do feel that regulation will be um, resisted and gamed, not only by banks, but also by governments, simply because... The finance, a large finance sector, uh, they want to preserve the prosperity of their national finance sector. Uh, and um, because uh, it, it, it is such a large contributor to the tax uh, take and um, it's seen to be prestigious and employ so many people and be a great multiplier. I mean, I, I really, I can't, I, I think regulation will always be um, resisted and gamed. And, and, and the, 
those who are being regulated will always be one step ahead uh, or several steps ahead. You're, you're, you're chasing um, very bright people who are, um, have the motivation of, of making money. I mean, my, my approach is not, not uh, mutually exclusive. My approach is, to, which I had to rattle through towards the end, but if you actually... Who owns the wealth of society? A large part of it is the institutions that I mentioned. The, the, uh, they're the custodians of social wealth, the sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, and so forth. And they have been taken to the cleaners by the agents, uh, by the nature of the system. And uh, if, if they just change, lengthen the horizon of their investment strategies, if they reduce turnover, if they stop buying... Um, every new instrument and every new technique. Um, I mean, let me just give you one example. And um, I think it's been so incredibly destructive. What, what's happened in the last five years is that um, pre-2005, commodity prices, both individually and collectively, were volatile, but you could always explain for any commodity based on the supply and demand for the underlying commodity, for actually people who produced or consumed the commodity, whether it's freight rates, uh, aluminium, uh, wheat, oil. You could always explain the supply and demand situation lying behind price changes. The cry went up in 2005, uh, encouraged by the investment banks, by the advisors to pension funds, invested commodities, invested in alternative investments, which included, uh, of course, uh, private equity, hedge funds. But this particular um, axe that I have to grind, the, the commodities. So you had, to start with, you had uh, $400 billion of passive investment in commodity prices. You then had probably the same amount of money building up over the following several years, um, being actively managed in commodities. Commodities actually don't give, haven't in the past given a positive real return. They don't actually yield a dividend. Uh, they've just about kept pace with inflation. Uh, the argument was given that, and there was obviously there was some, there always is a, a good base case, basic case for any innovation. And the basic case was there's increasing demand from uh, emerging markets, China, and uh, there's a need to protect against inflation, and uh, there, is sure, there are shortages. But the trouble is that this flood of almost a trillion dollars of money going into commodities has caused, the, first of all, one of the cases for commodities, going back to OFI, was that they were negatively correlated with equities. What has happened with the flood of money coming in is that they are now highly positive, positively, positively correlated, not only with equities, but individually uh, they're, they're now highly correlated. It, there are two damaging results from this, uh, this, this flood of money, which has no right buying commodities in my view. I think it's actually unethical because uh, they don't need the investing institutions, uh, shouldn't be buying them. Um, the the um, diversification case has disappeared. 
Uh, they've done very well out of them in the short run, but the intermediaries, I and mean, we have Glencore going public currently, um, it's a, an agent, <laughs> market maker in, in the finance sector, selling for, I don't know, I, I, I lose track of how many tens of billions. I think it's 60 billion it's being marketed for on the basis of one or two seller years. Um, you know, that's agents c- c- uh, capturing a good portion of the gains that should be going to the owners of the funds that are investing in these things and capitalising on it. Uh, and, in, and indeed, the giant funds have to invest in Glencore to get the 60 billion because it's in the index. You know, it's a silly game we're engaged in. And the sooner that the giant funds realise they have a, an individual self-interest, irrespective of what any other fund does, to changing the basis on which they invest, following uh, the, the um, manifesto points... Um, and I talk to, I am talking to a lot of giant funds, and they 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 are alarmed at what what has happened to their returns, and they realise there is something they have to do dramatically different, and they are starting to take seriously uh, some of these suggestions. If enough funds do, if enough funds do adopt these strategies, then there comes a social benefit in the form of more stable markets less rent capture, and a less bloated finance sector, and it's less, one that's less prone to crisis. I'm at the end of the table, and, uh, in, in ter- in terms, both in terms of my location now, but also in terms of talking about the thing from a rather different standpoint to my colleagues. But I do think it's terribly important. As a farmer, I keep on hoping that some of the increased prices will come through to me. So far, they haven't. Um, Mark, can I turn to you? Because you um, queried the advantages uh, in having a level playing field and going global, and you were suggesting fragmentation. What comes to my mind is that the argument for the EU, the argument for the Eurozone was very much on the line that if you had freedom of movement of capital, freedom of movement of persons, greater competition and all that, that we would get much more efficiency. And I can remember thousands of papers of you know, the cost of non-Europe. I do, are you prepared to... I do take your, your argument through to the logic of saying that the whole argument for having a European <coughs> Union is economically unsound too? Or, or I, do, you di- do you distinguish between a region and the world? And if so, how and why? I think I would uh, probably distinguish between a, a region which is almost a quasi-state in a way and which is uh, more highly integrated and has common set of rules for everyone. So probably there's more a, a case of having also financial regulation a unified form of financial regulation. But also then, I mean, I'm not so sure how much of this is received wisdom in a way. I also learned, of course, all these um, arguments that there are mutual benefits. And I wonder, sometimes wonder whether someone really checked um, what, which of, how much of them came true. And, and then again, I think the question is against what do you measure it? If you, if you had a perfect, perfectly regulated global financial system, then probably completely free movement of capital and unified set of rules would be the most as efficient as you can get. But um, do, would it not be better to have a better regulated 
fragmented system than a, a badly regulated global system. And I mean, to be uh, concrete, in, in, in the Basel III case, um, everyone, has, everyone argued that these should be minimum standards so um, countries can top up uh, what has been agreed on. But even this is now debated on the, on the case that this would violate the rev level playing field um, argument. And this I completely do not understand. I mean, why should a country like Switzerland not just double its capital requirements if it feels that it's um, too small, too safe, or if its banks are too big? But surely the Swiss argument is that if the Swiss could do it, then shouldn't we have a minimum agreement and do sort of a, a Swiss finish or in some cases a British finish on top of it? Don't you get the benefits of both worlds in that way? Yes, but what if the, if the British don't want to do it? I mean, there, there are different social choices on there and, and can you really... Um, and we see how difficult it is in the EU, but um, let alone on a global scale, I wonder whether one would not need some sort of world government in order to achieve... Yeah, but I'm given that we got a sort of a global IT system uh, where you can find out the identity of a British footballer who's played fast and loose um, more or less anywhere in the world before the British newspapers are allowed to report it. And given that with the global IT and the ability to travel around the world and all that, and, and we live in a world which is globally united, and is, is, the, is, is it actually sensible to go back to national control? Should, should we not be going in the other direction? Apparently we can't get as far as we wanted to, isn't it? I mean, if you look at what was agreed on in Basel, which I agree with you, it's, it's, it's an important step and it's more than many people had hoped, and it's a step forward, but still uh, probably not enough. And if the global consensus ends at some point, someone has to move ahead. I mean, it's the same with nuclear energy, right? Why, why should not one country which believes this is not the safe technique just go ahead and outlaw it? I thought you more or less had in this country. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but we are accused for it. I, I think that we actually ought now to move on uh, to questions from yourselves, um, which I'm sure that someone on the panel will be able to, to answer. Um, are there any... I, I think that there will be a, a mobile mic which will be available. Is there anyone who wants to I hope there's somebody. There's someone up front here. What you can do while waiting is, is come. You can come up here. News <laughs> Asking the question is probably already getting the answer right away because the answer will be no. But especially you talked about the bloated finance sector and similar. Uh, I think there's a consensus there. Many things went wrong because transactions were not really economically motivated, but just agent-motivated and rent-capture-motivated, um, would a, and I know <clears throat> this has been discussed again and again, it's unrealistic anyway, but uh, 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 simply a tax on financial transactions that is sufficiently high to prevent all this gambling stuff do uh, um, at least a, a large uh, way towards what we want to achieve here. Paul, I think this is for you to start. Okay. Um, yes, you see, um, while what I propose, um, uh, it's up to the, the giant funds to uh, take the initiative to introduce these policies, there are a number of measures that the policymakers can uh, introduce to support that. Um, one of the um, features of, of uh, most of these giant funds around the world is that they enjoy 
some tax benefits, some tax exemptions. Uh, that's certainly true as, uh, in, in all the countries I've um, seen, looked at. Uh, there's some tax advantage they have. Uh, it seems to me, and in fact it's, it's actually in the UK, it's still lying there somewhere in the statute books, that uh, the tax authorities can withdraw that tax exemption if the entity is deemed to be uh, trading rather than investing. And my goodness, uh, since most funds have, a, through their agents managing the money, have a turnover of over 100% a year, um, that's hardly long-term investment. And with high-frequency trading, now accounting for maybe 30 or 40% of the turnover, um, and uh, who gains from the, the high-frequency trading? Um, it, 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 it's, it's the agents, again. I mean, what, what I think is that rather than a, a Tobin tax or something like that, um, just a very simple measure of... of uh, withdrawing tax exemption rights for funds that have turnover of more than 30%. 30% is, is, is quite enough, a holding period, average holding period of three and 30 years for the average stock in a portfolio. Um, and uh, if you've got uh, new funds coming in, uh, then you can change the composition of the portfolio really quite quite. Um, Readily, but the important thing is to extend the horizon um, to make investors invest for the medium and long term. After all, their liabilities are all long term. Uh, so you have this bizarre situation of the average liability of a pension fund being 25 years, um, and it's um, managed uh, on the basis of turnover which is less than a year of, of holding period, uh, which also causes companies to manage their businesses on an even shorter horizon as well. Uh, so there is some place for taxes. I'm not actually in favour of a Tobin tax. Um, I do think that there's something that can be done along the lines I mentioned. Thanks. Do you have, it, as a practitioner, do you have any views about the Tobin tax or financial transactions tax? Um, I, th I, I will come back to my to my um, statement at the beginning of the discussion um, because, yes, what I have seen in, in the practice so far is that all, a lot of these, um, yes, transactions um, which banks are running for clients and with clients are tax-driven, are accounting-driven, are regulatory-driven. So from that point of view, I think a, a, any kind of tax for financial transactions makes sense. But that's my personal opinion. That's not a PwC opinion, so uh, to make that clear. But nevertheless, I... Hogan, <laughs> you? Yeah, thank you. I'd like to come back to sort of my very simplistic view of things. I view the financial industry largely as an instrument to transmit monetary policy to the real economy. If monetary policy makes a mistake and you have a highly geared, well-oiled financial industry, that mistake has dr drastic, dramatic consequences. If you throw a bit of sand in the wheels of the financial industry, it actually, of course, means that a monetary policy mistake will have less disastrous consequences. So in that sense, it may clearly make sense to throw a bit of sand in the wheels of the financial industry. And if a Tobin tax is an instrument to do that, I'm ready to debate its merits. It's just, as a Tobin tax, 
I have a lot of respect for financial engineers around the world, and I would not be surprised for them to come up with ways to make it largely ineffective. I think the easiest way to counter all that is to start at the source, which is at the central bank. If you think that fun there are too many financial transactions in the currency whose monopoly supplier you are as a central bank in the last resort, raise your interest rate. Collect the seniorage. If need be, the little inflation tax rather than a Tobin tax, and you would probably have a much more equitable distribution of the costs and hardly any way to circumvent that, but because in that particular currency you are in the last resort the monopoly supplier. So I have a lot of sympathy for that, but my first preference would still be get the central banks to recognize they are not just responsible for price stability. We managed to do that, get them to recognize they're responsible for the stability of circulation of the money which they supply as a monopoly. And just, yeah, uh, just a quick comment. But what makes you so uh, sure that the level of interest, interest rates would actually affect the volume of financial transaction? And, I mean, in the Fed case, didn't the Fed raise interest, rate at some, interest rates at some point and uh, still the boom continued? I, wonder, just, I just wonder whether the interest rate is really the right instrument here for macropotential um, stability? It's not the only instrument. There is a lot to be said for regulation, of course, and the capital requirements, capital buffer, and quite a few of those things which I don't always fully understand. But in my simplistic view, an interest rate is in a way a tax on leverage, you could say. It makes leverage more difficult if your ultimate refunding costs at the, at the central bank are higher so in that way, you would probably have less growth in leverage if the financing costs are higher. So in that sense, I think it would reduce the growth rate of financial transactions, although it would, of course, not hit all, all instruments. A lot of things would still happen as they ought to. I can't resist joining in on this one because I have a position, I for that, position on it too. Um, at one stage, I got involved with the micro-market structure of the foreign exchange market. And the way the foreign exchange market works is that the major banks provide a market. The ma you can't forecast where foreign exchange is going. Lots of people have tried. They've all failed. With the result that the market makers are very strictly limited in the positions that they can take, and rightly so. So when a client comes to put in a foreign exchange order, the market maker who meets that order then becomes unbalanced. And in order to rebalance that position, he himself or she has got to do an offsetting transaction with another market maker. So the way that markets actually work is that a single initial order from some kind of dealer, maybe a company or even a group of individuals, will trigger off something like about 10 to 15 subsequent rebalancing transactions in the market. Now, if you're going to have a transaction tax, what you will find is that the ability to do that is strictly reduced. Uh, the costs of dealing in any financial market would go up by a very large amount indeed because the, um, the market makers would become much more risk-averse because it would be, be far less easy to trade out of your position. 
And the people who are actually speculating on a significant movement in, shall we say, oil or, shall we say, uh, American T-bonds or whatever, would not be affected because the kind of move that they're considering uh, is just much greater than the effect on markets. So it would, have a, it would have a major effect in everybody's transactions costs, indeed in any financial markets. It would not stop underlying uh, speculation. Um, and I, it, it would certainly reduce trading by a huge amount. And the markets would become very illiquid, very volatile, and much more disturbed than they are at the moment. Um, my view is that the Tobin tax would be a disaster, and I'm glad to say it won't happen because it, it's easily avoided simply by trading in any other centre which doesn't have a Tobin tax involved. So if Europe was to introduce a Tobin tax, and shall we say Hong Kong and Singapore did not, the trading would simply disappear from Europe and it would end up in Hong Kong and Singapore for no, as far as I could see, good purpose at all. So my view of the Tobin tax is is that this is one of the world's sillier ideas. <laughs> Can I follow that up? Thank you. Uh, Charles. Um, let, let me just pick up something uh, Charles was talking about there, uh, liquidity. Um, the regulators have always um, encouraged uh, the, or always prom- sought to promote li- liquidity, so that if a new product comes along, the explanation that it offers increased liquidity, higher, higher levels of trading, uh, that's always been the basis for an approval uh, of the new product because liquidity in an efficient market is good. Similarly, any new product that dresses up risk and return in a new way has been regarded as completing the market and therefore has been endorsed. That's unfortunately not the case if markets are inefficient. So what we're saying is that um, markets are, um, in, in our approach, we don't regard them as efficient. We're saying they're subject to mispricing. And it isn't necessarily the case that increased liquidity uh, is a good thing in a market that's fundamentally mispriced. We've better got into another question, haven't we? Uh, yes. <laughs> Can we have another question? I would like to know what you think in terms of the future role of agents given the current uh, situation in markets uh, and also of the principles. Uh, this goes back very much to your presentation. Um, do you think the principles have learned their lessons and um, will be able to approach agents uh, in a different way in the future? Uh, will the technology help them in this respect uh, in reducing, for example, the asymmetries you were referring before? It's you, Paul. I think so. Um, <laughs> uh, the agents... Uh, are, are sorry. The, the principles are, as, are often comprised trustees who are former agents or people who aspire to be agents. They're advised by agents, and and the most important thing of all is that they are um, they're slaves to a discredited theory of efficient markets. So I mentioned that that affects the, uh, a lot of the way that they set benchmarks. The benchmarks are, in many cases, the indices which, in an inefficient market, are inappropriate benchmarks. 
um, and the risk analysis they're using is wrong. There, there is needed a major education, re-edu- well, education of, of, uh, of the giant funds to show them how to, um, what, is go- what is going wrong and why it's going wrong and how they can address it. And um, so I think that, uh, you know, I've spoken to people at the IMF, uh, the Bank of England, EU, and so on. Um, uh, They similarly are aware that there's a problem, but it it will take uh, some time for the education process to be effective and for them to change their ways. But... I must say, I, I get a greater sense of desperation among the giant funds now in the last year or two, given the appallingly low returns they've, they've, they've had. And with the rent capture going back up again, uh, the prospects are for a continuation of rock-bottom returns uh, for the future, unless they do act. Is there anyone else among, on the panel who wants to comment on agents and principles and if not can we have another my question is actually connected with the with the former one because um I, I'm, I'm, I feel it's a very good idea to look at it from the demand side so from the investor point of view because I'm not so sure that the regulators will do a better job than the the demand side. So um, what I would like to ask you, actually, Paul, is uh, whether you can expand a bit on um, the... I'm sure you've done work on why it is that giant funds have the incentive to act the way they do, that uh, like a great asset liability mismatch in duration or even in, in high turnovers... Um, so the, I think there's a, the next principal agent question is why do they have all this money, this other people's money that they that they um, invest in the markets? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there is a, a structural point here that needs to be investigated because um, uh, it depends really on why. Why would you if you if you if you have a choice? Why would you give a giant fund, fund your money to, to manage it. Yes, I mean, it's, I called it a manifesto because it does need a revolution. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. Uh, it needs a revolution uh, of thinking and also, frankly, action by, the, by, by the, the man and woman in the street. We are actually the people that are paying the price for this. Um, and again, I'm not blaming the system. I'm, I'm blaming... Uh, I'm observing the nature of the problem and explaining that the the key to it is is a misunderstanding of how how, uh, finance works. And, um, I mean, the the returns they could gain, the additional returns over and above what they're getting now, are very significant. I mean, I I said 1% uh, per annum real over the last 10 years. That could be easily pushed back up to the... Uh, figures of four or five percent they've enjoyed in the in previous decades, if they started to act individually, and then there was a, uh, the collective advantages came through. Let me just give you an example of what happens. Um, the the giant fund observes that markets are mispriced and hires a manager. The trouble is uh, to 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 exploit the mispricings. 
The trouble is the contract he writes encourages uh, actually a good proportion of momentum trading, simply buying on the basis of short-run price change rather than the fundamental reason. People have actually forgotten that you invest for the dividends. In fact, you don't get much more than the dividends as a return from your investment. I mean, companies have even stopped paying, in many cases, dividends. The whole thing is is bizarre, actually. It's bizarre. Um, And it... Uh, on risk again it, it's fascinating just to give you an example um, the principal will give the agent some uh, constraints on, on tracking error the divergence the maximum divergence of performance that they want that they, uh, the maximum limits of performance they want to see from that fund in relation to the index that actually forces the manager to use momentum-type strategies simply to keep the tracking error down. It's a slightly technical point. But what I'm saying is that uh, everybody knows the paradigm of efficient markets is is flawed and has become increasingly um, falsified in recent years. Um, But they don't realise that the actions they are taking are are, uh, compounding the problem. I mean, Part of the problem is nobody wants to act individually. I mean, that, that is the, if, if you act out of the herd, the first one to do, to do that could find themselves uh, losing money in the short run. Uh, just as, as um, anybody who held out against the tech bubble and didn't invest in tech stocks like us uh, was, was thought to have lost the plot, and so we were fired. Actually, our long-run returns... <laughs> for those who actually stayed with us, were um, extraordinarily strong. Um, What you do need is an education process and and people prepared uh, to... You you need, actually, a a sufficiently large group of thought thought leaders among the giant funds to act in a way that is more prudent. Mm -hmm. And once you've done that... You, you actually create a sensible herd instead of a silly herd. Your crew, do you want to Yes, uh, only, only one short comment regarding this um, role of investors. So Basel II uh, was developed with this Pillar 3 and the requirements for market disclosure and, uh, as a consequence, this um, instrument of market discipline. But when you go through these Pillar 3 disclosures, more than 100 pages um, in large banks, I think you need a very deep understanding of the things banks are doing, and at the end of the day, at least from my person, I didn't find uh, really the things I would like to know what banks did, like hedging of credit risk or uh, what are the counterparties for these hedging positions and so on and so on. So this is one point. The other is IFS is disclosing, I think, more than 200, 300 pages notes and, and um, risk reports. And I think it's very difficult to get a deep understanding what banks are really doing, even when you have um, went through these reports. So the, the question for me is, and I think it's, um, I fully agree with, with um, Mr. Woolley, um, that uh, you need a deep understanding and you need an education for these things. And nevertheless, there are, I'm missing a lot of information in these reports. 
Thank you very much, Charles, and uh, thank you very much for these presentations. And I think you're elaborating on a huge spectrum of different issues and topics within the financial system as such. I have uh, one point of observation and then one question to you, Charles. Well, firstly, on the European financial market, a lot of effort is done, I mean, on, on both on the micro-prudential supervision level and the micro-prudential provision level. A lot has been done to create European Systemic Risk Board for the three new supervised authorities that have just started here in January. They are working enormously to try to standardize and harmonize the data requests in order to get comparability and to do the assessments in order to give policy guidance. So I do think there's a lot of things happening on the financial market, both on the regulatory side, but also on the market side, both for institutions, instruments, markets, uh, per se. Now, going back to, to Chan's presentation, my question relates to, and I have some sympathy for that with all our research that we've done, that we must also have some kind of self-assessments that our models, and in particular the assumptions of our models, may not have passed all our tests in the recommendations and the way we have looked at it on a micro-potential supervision level, but also for systemic risk purposes as such. Um, how do we then move forward on the research side? How do we capture these herding effects? How do we capture these non-rational parts of the decision-making processes that are on the financial market? What, what is our next step on the research agenda then, according to you? Let me start with your observation and the ESRB. Uh, I have great hopes for the European Systemic Risk Board uh, because I think that the way it is actually set up is that it's an umbrella body and the actual, it, does, it, it can't take macroprudential measures itself. But it, as I understand it, it will point to dangers in, in member countries and ask the member countries to take the action and report back to it. Now, that, I think, has certain advantages because many of the actions that need to be taken when you get bubbles uh, and credit booms of the kind that Holger was talking about are actually rather hard to take politically because they're very unpopular. But the ESRB, because it's not taking the actions, will be in a position of a much more independent observer who can say to the nation, to the member state, to each national country, we think that this is wrong. Go and do something about it. And then the member state, uh, the relevant institution, whether it's a central bank or an FSA or whatever, can point to the ESRB and says we've been told to do something about it. And that gives them political cover. So I think that, in fact, the way that the ESRB has been set up can actually deal with the problem that trying to stop a boom is actually very unpopular. And this is... is, is I, have, I, I have really considerable hopes that the ESRB may be a very significant step forward. I hope that you will prove me right. Um, I, I, I'm on the question of how do we improve macroeconomics. My worry or feeling is that 
the, the, the trouble or a problem with macroeconomics is that it's not sufficiently evidence-based. It has moved away, or theory has moved away, from looking first at, em at empirical relationships and then trying to think what causes those empirical relationships. Um, I, the, probably the most influential uh, single macroeconomist uh, over the last 40 years has been Bob Lucas. And Bob, in many ways, is, is undoubtedly a genius. But I think that his approach of saying that you've got to base everything uh, on uh, opt optimization approaches and that sort of reduced form exercises of looking at empirical relationships is the wrong way to go. I think it has been a huge dead end. Um, and I think we need to get away from it. Not entirely. Uh, I think it, it, um, I, it's very difficult. Um, and, the, um, and economics is, is, is... And we can't do controlled experiments. We can't do counterfactuals. And what's more, uh, with the experiments that nature provides through the policy measures that are taken, they have effects which change the responses of both the, if you like, the public and change the responses of the authorities themselves. And it's not like physics, where if you do an, you know, a, a test on you know, trying to work out what, the, what happens when you pass electricity through a metal, it doesn't cause the metal to change the way it behaves. But the, the public does change its behavior depending on what the authorities do. And it is, it, economics is far more difficult um, than physics. And how we actually handle this... And we're, and we're, uh, and one of the fascinations of economics is, frankly, it's not very good. <laughs> Listening to you, and uh, the first one is: Could be uh, the red line uh, between the approach to self-regulation and regulation of the market uh, the driver of what we seek? If we seek market discipline for a balance of gain, then probably the self-regulation of the agent is the good practice. But if we seek the stability of the market, then the driver is the public attention. The driver is the interest of uh, the, the state or the government for the stability of the whole system that is probably against or opposed to the gain of the single agent. So when looking at the... Um, 
the, the need of a regulation, then we need to see what we look for and then establish a regulation upon that. Second question is, why, when we look at the, uh, the criteria uh, describing the financial market today, we see a global nature, fragmentation of agents, and, um, and a target, which is the best gain possible, the most to gain possible. And then we look at the trading goods, and we see the same thing. We see a very international, globally entangled market uh, with very fragmented actors, and which tends to the most, the most number of transactions possible. One is completely in, unruled or a lot ruled compared to some years ago, but we are still discussing about having it regionally or globally regu regulated, while the, on the other hand, we have the WTO. Mark. No. Yeah, only the, the first one. Um, I, I think this is a very important point, because um, even if by setting the right incentives for... Um, private sector agents, so as to um, having them more uh, applying more control measures and so on and so on. Um, the result you would get from that is probably not the social or political result that we would like to have on a, you know, um, uh, on, a, on, a on a societal or political level. So, um, and I think it's, um, it's it's a crucial point because um, it would be demanding too much from a market. Um, even from a perfect a market that works perfectly, um, to have to also produce the social the social goods. So we might still even if we have all the agents doing all the right stuff, we might still um, need regulation because there are other goals than market efficiency. I, I think that's how I understood the question. Well, uh, can I pick up just one aspect to what you said, um, which um, is, is terribly important? Um, finance is unique. Uh, in one sense, uh, there's a limit to how many shoes, pairs of shoes, are produced and can be worn and consumed and used, or tooth toothpaste. I mean, product product markets are very definitely finite. Actually, finance is infinite, and it's infinite because you have uh, we, we've seen it we've seen it heading off into infinity in the last decade or so because you have and you have equity, the base of equity um, issuance um, representing the market cap of the companies. And then on top of that, you get derivatives, uh, you get futures, you get options, you get options on options. You know, you have this whole quivering monster growing ever larger. Um, it, it's uh, not only... I mean, I don't, I'm not quite sure how many hundreds of trillions... Uh, of dollars worth of, of um, derivatives and, and instruments are an issue, but it's growing uh, like a pandemic, um, and it's it's this vast wobbling thing that's getting larger and larger and m m less and less stable. Every I, as I going back to my point uh, to try and correct or oh, to hedge your risk, short-term risk. You buy instruments which actually bring about the event that you're trying to protect yourself, so you've got to buy another set of instruments. I mean, this is why. So the, the, the size finance doesn't obey the same laws as other product markets, and we see that in actual part of the I'm going to ask Ogar whether he feels himself part of a, a vast wobbling mass. 
<laughs> yes, I really have to think about that, that I may be part of a quivering monster that seems to be so dangerous. There is, once again, of course, something to it. You're absolutely right. There is no physical limit to finance. But I think, as Charles Goodhart has explained to us, a lot of the growth that you see, actually, in financial transactions is just an attempt to better hedge yourself as a market maker. So that is not, first of all, a quivering monster. That is actually a genuine better attempt to better distribute risk than you could in the past. So I would take quite some exception to that description of the financial industry. Once again, for me, two key points are if you set the incentives wrong, then, of course, you can turn a nice car, a Porsche, into an extremely dangerous instrument. That is possible and has happened to the financial industry. And the other point, once again, for me to emphasize, um, that's partly in relation to your question, there will always be human folly, human error, there will always be herd behavior. So I think for us as a collective entity, which means for us acting through our governments, our first and foremost interest should be to prevent the ultimate disasters, such as those that happened after Lehman Brothers. We will never be able to get rid of hurt behavior, of booms and busts, but we have to make as sure as we can that any such mistakes, and even the best-run central bank will make mistakes, even if I think they should normally have a somewhat higher interest rate than they typically have, even if they were to heed my advice, they would always make mistakes. And I would, as a central banker, make huge mistakes. So to me, the first principle of regulation should be to contain the damage and contagion risks from the inevitable occurrence of something going seriously wrong. So that would be my foremost interest in regulation. I can't help noting, uh, Paul, that you said that there's a limit to the number of shoes that we can use. There is a counterexample, and her name is Imelda Marcos. <laughs> well, no, she only had 300. I mean, not 3 trillion. But she would have liked to have had double 300 if she could. But can we have the next question, please? I'm just running out of time. Um, we have outsiders a buffet waiting and some drinks, and you will have the chance to ask other questions to our panelists. I think, I hope that they will join us for another um, uh, 30 or one hour. Um, on the behalf of the audience, on the behalf of LSE and the alumni organization of the LSE, a big thank you for all of you that you are joining, you are joining us on the, on the um, panel. A special thank you to Charles because he wasn't supposed to uh, head the panel discussion. Unfortunately, Dr. Friedrich Thelen couldn't join us. He's sorry, but he has a slip disk and couldn't join us. So thanks again. And outside, we have a buffet and a lot of drinks, and I hope you can continue the discussion about this interesting topic. Thank you very much.